Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He was, has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Although he wanted to put him to death, and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, and because, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And the, to the girl, and, given, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Now, some of you say, well, Jim, why are we going to cover such a large section tonight? Well, because hopefully you're going to see in time tonight and next week that these stories are connected and actually in ways that you might not have seen and actually hope to be used of God tonight to show you that there's another story that we're going to show you tonight that is also connected to all of this. In the full context, my prayer is that this famous story that we all know about Jesus feeding the 5,000, hopefully you'll come to understand that there's something deeper going on here than what we've all been taught over the years. Interestingly enough, if you study the four Gospels, besides the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's one, only one other episode in his whole life that's in all four Gospels. You know what it is? It's the feeding of the 5,000. All the other things Jesus did, there's only two that are re recorded in all four Gospels. His death and his resurrection. His birth's not even mentioned in all four Gospels. But his death and resurrection are mentioned in all four Gospels, and the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels. And folks, I want you to be listening tonight and next week, because there is so much in this story that God has for us. Because how he was working with his disciples then, and what was going on then, is exactly how he's working still today. And my prayer is that through our study tonight, you'll start to see things in your life that all of a sudden make sense. Like, I, now I know what God was doing, or is doing and what's going on. So let's begin to kind of break this down and unpack it. As we can see from the context, not long after Herod had John the Baptist put to death, you see this story, if you remember, as we read it, it was a recounting of what had happened. Because at the beginning of our section, John, uh, Herod hears about Jesus and he thinks it's John back from the dead. He had had him put to death and Jesus, he hears about the fame of Jesus and assumes that it's actually John the Baptist back from the dead, not reincarnated, 
but possibly a ghost or just resurrected. He, by the way, you want to talk about a guilty conscience. I mean, you had someone put to death, and then just a few weeks later, you hear about this other guy, and you're thinking, he's back from the dead. You know the guy was feeling pretty guilty about what he had done. We had already seen earlier in our study that John was already in prison. Go back to Matthew chapter 11. Just look at verses 1 through 3 again. We remind you. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples to, to him and said, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? We've already been through that study. But at that point, John was already in prison. Now we see why. He was put in prison because he had told the king who was over Galilee, working for Rome, that he shouldn't have his brother's wife. Now let me kind of, for the, some of you that might need some help here with this, give you a little historical background. Herod the Tetrarch is the Herod that's mentioned here. Herod the Tetrarch, his, another name that you'll find is his name is Herod Antipas. All right, Herod the Tetrarch is the same one as Herod Antipas that you'll see in the scriptures. He's one of the four sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king who was in charge at the time of Jesus' birth. Remember when Jesus was born, Herod was so upset, he had all the babies born. I saw all the babies killed, two years old and down. That's Herod the Great. Herod the Great dies not long after Jesus is born. He had four sons, and they took over reigning in this area, and they each had different areas that they were responsible for. Herod the Tetrarch, also known as Herod Antipas, was over Galilee. Now, I'm not going to list all four sons for you, but I'm going to mention three of them for a reason. We have Herod Antipas. There's another one named Aristobulus. Aristobulus was the son of Herod the Great, a brother of Herod Antipas. The reason I mention Aristobulus is because he had a daughter, and Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. All right? We just saw her in our story. There's another brother named Philip. Philip is mentioned because he also is a brother of Aristobulus and Herod Antipas. But as we see here, Herodias, the daughter of Aristobulus, marries her uncle, her father's brother. But not long after that, Herod Antipas convinces her to leave his brother and marry him. So we got a pretty messed up incestuous relationship going on already. And you thought your family get-togethers at Thanksgiving were weird, all right? Well, John the Baptist actually came and told Herod Antipas that he wasn't allowed, according to God's law, to have his brother's wife, that it was against the law and the design of God. And when John the Baptist told him that, as we saw here, he told him that he had one right to have his brother's wife, Herodias got upset about it. Herod Antipas, of course, got upset by it, and they threw him in prison. But what I want to do is I want to take you real quickly back to the passage that most likely John the Baptist used to demonstrate God's law and why it was wrong. Go with me to the book of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 18. Leviticus chapter 18, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 18. In this whole section about unlawful sexual relationships, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall, not follow my, sorry, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. 
You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, who, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your fa father's family, since she's your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She's your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife, and you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness, their relatives. It's depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Now, we're not going to take the time to get into God's plan and all this stuff, but we can see here what is very, very clear in this whole section is God says, don't have sexual relationships with your near relatives which was going on in that household. And John the Baptist, being a prophet, just said, it's not right for you to do this. What you're doing is sin. By the way, John the Baptist didn't just tell the Jews that they were sinning. He even told the Gentiles. He, this gets him in trouble. And because of this, they get mad and they throw him in prison. Now, Herodias, like I just said, had hated John the Baptist ever since he had exposed her sin, and she wanted him dead. But Herod the Tetrarch was torn. He wanted him killed too. We just saw that here in Matthew chapter 14. If you go back and take a look again at verse 5. And though he wanted him put to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So Herodias wants him dead. And I'm going to show you that in just a second. Herod Antipas wants him dead, but he's afraid of what the people of Israel are thinking. Because remember, his job is to keep peace in Israel, especially in Galilee where he's ruling. And all the people held John the Baptist to be a prophet. And so he didn't want to have him put to death for fear of the people. We also see that he also knew that John was a holy man. And he also liked hearing John speak. But he feared the people that he was ruling. I got all that, by the way, from Mark chapter 6. Go to Mark chapter 6. Look at verses 14 through 29. Again, I cannot stress to you the importance of putting the whole Gospels, all of the Gospels together to get a clear understanding. Because as you're going to see later on tonight, when we read later or earlier tonight, we read how Jesus went away by himself. You're going to see he wasn't all by himself, even though it reads that way in Matthew. You're going to see in other Gospel accounts that he wasn't exactly alone. He was with the 12 apostles as well. But in Mark chapter 6, Verses 14 through 29, we get a clearer picture of what's going on here. It says that in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14, The king Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. Now hang on for a second. Now we get a clearer picture. Is Herod 
the first one to come up with the fact that it's John the Baptist back from the dead? No, others had been saying this. Some thought he was Elijah. You remember? We'll get there. But in Matthew 16, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Who do people say that I am? And they list, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and others say, you know, and I say you're the Christ. And so here's the deal. Now Mark tells us a little bit more and shows us that people have been saying this. And Herod became convinced that it was John the Baptist back from the dead. Why? The next verse we see in verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said that John, John whom I beheaded has been raised, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, there's so much that I would love to just chase for a while, but I'm not going to because of what we need to cover tonight. But let me just say this to you real quickly. Do you see the foolishness of thinking that your ministry is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, which is what the world teaches today? John the Baptist started big, but his role that the Father had chosen for him came to an end at the arrival of Jesus Christ. He must increase, John said, I must decrease. They came and they said, are you the Christ? He said, a man can only receive what he's been given from above. You've heard me say, I'm not the Christ. He said, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. When, when the friend of the bridegroom sees the bridegroom coming, his joy is, my job was to make ready for him. He's here now. It's time for me to take the back seat. We remember from our study in Matthew 11 that Jesus said, Of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. Yet, how did John the Baptist's life come to an end? Because of a stupid vow of a drunk king made to a young girl who had danced. In our minds, in our head, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem right. Folks, stop trying to figure God out. Humble yourself and just let God be God and you be what he's called you to be. John the Baptist will be rewarded and has been and will be for more, even more for eternity for his faithfulness. But in this life, it looked like it went that way. And most of us would have quick to say, well, he didn't accomplish great, great things for God. Don't go down that road. Avoid that tendency to think that you can get bigger and bigger and bigger ministries. That's not what the Bible teaches. Just live the life that God has for you. But I'm not going to chase that. All right, so... Herodias is, I want you to think about this though, Herodias' hatred for John the Baptist 
was so evident that when Herod promised her daughter anything she wanted, even up to half of Herod's kingdom, all she asked for was John the Baptist's head. Let that sink in for a minute. If Herod says, I'll give you whatever you want up to half of my kingdom, and keep in mind, by the way, it's obvious that Herod's got no problem with changing wives around. There's a chance she could have thought, you know what, you don't know how long this gig's going to last. Give me so much property, give me so much land, give me so much power, give me up to half of the kingdom. She had a chance to, she had such a hatred for John the Baptist that when that was offered up to half of the kingdom, she said, I just would like John the Baptist's head. I'm going to ask you a question. How much do you miss out on because of your infatuation with sin, with hatred, resentment, and a thirst for revenge? See, we can sit here and talk about how stupid it was in Herodias' life. But folks, one of the saddest things I see all around the country is Christians who are miserable because of their grudges that they won't let go of. Resentment, unforgiveness, hatred. And the Bible says when we hang on to sin, the Lord won't hear us. The Bible says that when we love the things of this world and we allow these things to fester because somebody did me wrong, it actually hurts our relationship with God, and we miss out on so much. We've already looked last time we were together at how much we miss out on because we don't believe. The next question for tonight is, is how much are you missing out on because of your hatred, your love with sin, and your resentment and thirst for revenge? Let me just read to you a couple of passages that go that way. Go to James chapter 4. We've been looking at James chapter 4 as we've been looking at asking and believing but listen to what it says in the full context, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. James, writing to believers, because you're going to see very clearly he's writing to believers as he talks about the Spirit indwelling them. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James is writing to a group of Christians that are so worldly, they're trying to accomplish things in the flesh. They're wanting stuff, and they think people are in the way and not letting them get what they want, and so they murder. Now, they didn't actually kill them, but what did Jesus say? If you have hatred towards your brother, it's the same thing as murder. And how many people today won't sit on a certain side of the sanctuary because so-and-so is on the other side? How many people today won't even speak to that person anymore because they've broken fellowship? They let me down. Folks, Herodias missed out on so much because of her hatred and resentment for John the Baptist. And many of you are missing out on a bunch. And the Bible actually says if you're not willing to forgive, good luck having your prayers for forgiveness answered. 
It sounds like 1 Corinthians. Yeah, the mess that was going on there. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Look at verses 19 through 21. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Whose job is it to make sure that everything's taken care of and justice is done? God's. In the meantime, we wait until that day in which he will, and we are to love those who are out to get us. Don't let the bitterness and the resentment build. I'm not going to hammer this too hard because those of you that are listening right now that know that the Spirit of God is speaking to you because of an issue with your brother or your sister or someone that's really hindering your walk with the Lord and he's been talking to you for a while. Folks, let me just tell you, don't, don't be proud anymore. Humble yourself and say, Lord, forgive me. I need to forgive. I need to let it go and have him give you the grace. But let me also show you, King Saul's resentment towards and hatred of David consumed him and destroyed his life too, did it not? Go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Look at verses 6 through 9. 1 Samuel 18 verses 6 through 9. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. By the way, what do we know about Saul from this point on? We looked at his life. What do we know about Saul? Fill me in. For the rest of this point on, what do we know about King Saul? I'm sorry? He goes downhill. And what is he trying to do in all the rest of the time? Kill David. Chase David. Kill David. Throwing spears at David. Trying to kill David. Hunt him in the rocks and the caves. David a couple of times shows that he could have killed him, but he doesn't. And oh, you're right. You know what? I'm, I'm so sorry, David. No, he goes right back to after him. Even to the point that at the end of his life, he's consulting a witch to be able to hear from God. Folks, I can't say it enough. You've got resentment, you've got unforgiveness, and you don't reconcile it, it will tear you apart. Yeah, life of total paranoia, exactly. Matthew 5, go to Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. I just referenced this. We're going to look at it. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you or you against your brother, leave your gift there before the altar and go. 
First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Years ago, I actually had to have a staff member removed from duty because he made this statement in a meeting. I know it's wrong, but I will never forgive that person. And that's when we said, guess who doesn't work here anymore at this church? Because of that attitude. Folks, don't let it be in your heart as well. Now, before we move on, I have to go give you some more context for our story in Matthew chapter 14. Let's go back to Matthew 14. We've seen the death of John the Baptist and why. But there's a context here that really doesn't show up in Matthew's account. I want to remind you, Matthew doesn't write chronologically. If you try to read the book of Matthew and think that happened before this and then this before that, it doesn't read like that. Matthew compiles things. The other Gospels do a better job of chronologically putting things together. So when you put the Gospels together, you get a better idea of what happened before the next thing. You're going to see that in Mark's account and Luke's account that the feeding of the 5,000 is tied to the death of John the Baptist. But there's something that happened prior to that that most people don't know is connected to the feeding of the 5,000. Go to me, so go with me to Mark chapter 6. All right? Go with me to Mark chapter 6 and look at verses 7 through 13. As you're going to turn there, I want you to see that Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, happens between the time of Jesus sending the disciples out two by two and when they return. John the Baptist is being beheaded happened between the time that Jesus sent his disciples out two by two and then when they returned. In Mark chapter 6, look at verses 7 through 13. And he called, this is Jesus, the twelve, and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, but not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. Now, without reading it, what happens next in verses 14 through 29? John the Baptist is being beheaded. Look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus, and, he told, and they told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And, he, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. 
So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Go to Luke chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 6, and then verses 10 through 17. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, in verses 7 through 9, what do we see? Herod being put in, uh, he's perplexed by Jesus because of John the Baptist having been put to death. This, that's what it says. You get to verse 10, we're not going to read it, but in verse 10 through 17, you'll see again the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Go back to Matthew 14 now. Matthew 14, look at verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Let me ask you a question. What had Jesus just heard? About the death of John the Baptist. Also the fact that Herod now is curious, thinking he's John the Baptist back from the dead. So when you put it all together, we see in the context, the fuller context, Jesus sends his disciples, John's already in prison, but Jesus sends his disciples out two by two to go preach the good news of the kingdom, and he gives them specific instructions, which we'll get to in just a little bit. While they're out, John the Baptist is beheaded, and the word of Jesus begins to spread, and Herod and others are saying, this is John the Baptist back from the dead. Right around that time that Jesus hears about John the Baptist's beheading, his disciples come back from the mission trip that he sent them on, and they come and report to him all that they had done, and he says, let's go get away by ourselves to a desolate place. They get in a boat. They go off. As we see from the accounts, the people see where they're going. They run around the lake, and they get there ahead of them. Jesus comes, and he teaches them. He has compassion. He heals them. The disciples come and they say it's late in the day. Send them away so they can get something to eat. And Jesus, in all the accounts, turns to them and says, you feed them. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a look at why this is all together. Go ahead, Warren. Well, they had just came back and told him all that they did. You got it. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to take a look at what's really going on. All right. In Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, what are Jesus' instructions to the disciples? What were they to bring when he sent them out two by two? Nothing. If you got a walking stick, was that legal? Sure. You got sandals on your feet? Fine. Were they allowed to bring a change of clothes? Not two tunics. Were they allowed to bring any money? No. Were they allowed to bring any food? No. He specifically says no food, no money in your belts. Don't bring a change of clothes. Now, let me ask you a question. Was this trip going to be a day trip or is this going to be a while? Of course, how do we know that it was going to be a while? He was sending them to town, to town, and stay there for a while. If they don't listen, move on to the next. And so this was going to take some days, maybe weeks, maybe months. We don't know how long it took. 
But his instructions were, don't bring any money, don't bring any food, don't bring a change of clothes. What was he trying to teach them by sending them out on this mission, and they can't bring anything? Depend on him. You go do what I asked you to do. You trust me to make it work. Correct? I mean, that's pretty much what it is. That's pretty clear. I'm sending you out with no provisions. By the way, how many of you would ever go on a trip with no provision? By the way, I'm like the rest of you. I mean, we're all waiting at the, at the baggage claim for all our bags whenever we go somewhere, you know? Actually, there was one time that God challenged Becky and I to do this. Years ago when we were in New Orleans, I was associate pastor at a church in New Orleans, and it was Thanksgiving or Christmas. I don't remember exactly what season it was, but we had a chance to drive home from New Orleans to here to Becky's parents, and they lived in Satellite Beach, and we had no money for gas. We had gas in the truck, but we didn't have enough money to buy gas to get there, and we felt like God was telling us to head to Florida anyway. We didn't tell her parents. We didn't tell our parents. We didn't tell anybody that we were hurting for money, and we didn't have enough money even for gas to get to Florida. And we headed off because we believe God told us to go, and we started driving to, to Florida from New Orleans. Before we left New Orleans, though, I needed to stop at the church where I was associate pastor and get something off my desk. So I literally just pulled up right by the office doors, left the car, tr pickup truck, sitting there crossways in the parking space in front of the door because the place was closed because it was, you know, holiday. And I used my key, ran into the office to grab something. When I came out, the senior pastor was leaning on the door, passenger door window, talking to Becky. I said, goodbye, see when we get back, jumped in the car, he went into the office, and I turned and looked at Becky, and she was sobbing. I have to be honest with you, I got mad. I said, what did he say to you? And he, she said, he told me to have a good trip, and he handed me this, and it was a $100 bill. Folks, in 1990, that'll get you a lot of gas. We had enough gas money to go all the way to Florida and all the way back before we even left New Orleans. He was showing them, you go do what I ask you to do, and you watch me provide. As Warren just brought out, though, look at verse 30 of Mark chapter 6. They came back and reported to Jesus what? All that what? All that they had done. Do you know what he does? He says, you didn't learn the lesson. I've got, exactly, I've got to reteach you this lesson. So he says, come with me to a desolate place. Don't miss that. Come with me to a desolate place and rest a while. Now, I'm going to just give a commercial for next week. You're going to find that they get no rest. Right? I mean, when they get there, the crowd's already there. You're going to find after that, he puts them in a boat. They can't get across the lake by themselves. When they get to the other side of the shore, there's people already there, and they have to deal with them. You're going to say, where's this rest that he offered? I'm going to show you the rest. It's actually in the story. You just don't recognize it. But there is rest that he's offering them. We'll deal with that next week. Well, it's definitely resting in him, but we're going to get into it in more detail next week. But let me give you a little bit of a hint for us tonight. Dependence on his power and his provision for whatever he asks for us to do is in the Bible as well. It's one thing to say that they were to trust him. Why didn't they trust him? Let me ask you, 
Are there things God's asked you to do? We've even hit on one tonight, maybe for some of you, and that's forgive. Is there something that he's asking you to do that's beyond your power? He'll give you the power and the provision to do whatever he asks you to do. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me show you what I'm talking about. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verses 10 and 11. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then he says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I know for years people have laughed at the way that I get tongue-tied sometimes. My kids get a big kick out of it. Every week they'll go and tell me afterwards, you said Paul instead of Peter. <laughs> you know what? It's okay. Because I also know that if you get anything out of these studies, it ain't Jim's eloquence. It's the power of God. And when I stand up here, I don't come here prepared and ready to go preaching my strength. Oh, I'm prepared. I've got more notes pages here than you, than you would want to know about. But at the same time, when I teach, I'm learning how to do it in provision that God's providing in his power. And whatever it is that he asks you to do in your gifting, if you're burnt out serving God, you're either doing something he hasn't empowered you to do and you're not supposed to be doing it, or you're doing something he's asked you to do in your own strength. There's no such thing as burnout. This should have never been the term burnout in the church because the Bible says he'll give us rivers of living water. We'll never thirst again. The Holy Spirit will continually pour through those who trust in him. Folks, we too need to understand how much are we trying to do in our own strength? How much is he challenging us to trust him or are we still trying to come up with ways to make it work? I'm tired of churches saying it's not in the budget. Folks, have you ever noticed that everything God asked them to do wasn't in the budget? But he provided, did he not? He sends Elijah to go to this widow, this destitute widow. God said, I got a widow in this town to take care of you and tire inside. And, and by the way, most of us, if we heard God say, I got a widow that I'm going to use to provide for you, we'd go looking for the rich widow, right? But that's not what God did. He sent him to a widow that only had enough to feed her and her son. It was their last meal. In other words, when Elijah shows up and he sees her gathering sticks to make her last meal for her and her son, she recognizes that he's a prophet because of his garb. And he says, would you get me something to drink? As she's going to get him a glass of water, he says, oh, and while you're at it, make something for me and feed me first. She doesn't say, oh, you're the one God told me about. She says, it ain't in the budget. But what does God do? He's already told Elijah, I've commanded a widow to supply you with food because God spoke it. It was going to happen. And he tells her, if you feed me first, I promise you it won't run out. And she had to take a step of faith and believe that the God who said it was going to do what he said he would do. I'm so grieved by so many churches that don't step out and do what God's asked them to do because they don't have the money. I actually was on the phone this afternoon with a, an elder of a church in Ohio and they're all excited because God's shown them that they're, they've just called a pastor and the church is booming and that God has called them to call an associate pastor. 
but everybody's freaking out now because we don't have the money to pay in this little church. And I had to say to him, did God tell you to do it? Well, we know he told us to do it. Then don't worry about the money. Just do it. But I'm afraid they're meeting right now, by the way, as we speak. I'll get the report after this Bible study. I'm afraid the trustees are going to say, hey, we don't have the money. I pray they don't. They'll miss out on so much. You know, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, to this end, I labor and I struggle, listen, with all his energy, which so powerfully works through me. You all know Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, how we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Verse 13 says, because it's God who works in us both to will, that's the desire, and to act according to his good purpose. Folks, don't listen to these lessons and talk about the disciples this, the disciples that. What about you? What are you missing out on? Because he said, trust me, do this. Lord, I can't. That's the whole point. I'm going to put you over and over and over and over in situations that you can't. You ever heard people say, God will never give you more than you can bear? Everything's more than you can bear. Because he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The scripture says he'll never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're to bear because of him being within you. But the Bible doesn't say he'll never give you more than you can bear. Everything's more than you can bear. But by his grace, when we trust him and we walk in obedience to what he has said, we see him do amazing things. But as we've already said, the disciples didn't learn that lesson when he sent them out. They came back and reported all that they had done. If you don't mind marking in your Bibles, go ahead and mark that in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Highlight the word they, circle the word they, just get the word they focused, because that's where they missed out. They, they thought they had done it. So Jesus tells them to get into a boat with them to go rest a while. Like I said, more on resting later in our study next week. As we see the crowds, as we see the crowds see where they're going and run around the Sea of Galilee on foot to meet Jesus and the disciples who have been uh, healing people, they see them too. Jesus has compassion on them and he healed the sick and he taught them. Matthew 14, 14 tells us that he's healing and Mark tells us that he's teaching. But late in the day, the disciples come to Jesus and tell him to send the people away so they can go into the town and buy food. But Jesus tells them, you feed them. And like Warren just brought out, listen to what Jesus is really saying to them. He says, I just sent you all out without any food and without any money. And you just came back and told me all that you did. You sound pretty impressive. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a seat here on the rock. Knock yourself out. You feed them. Show me what you can do. By the way, listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. I've heard too many people say, the Spirit of God has left that church. Not true. Because the Bible says He'll never leave us nor forsake us. So if there's a believer in that church, the Spirit of God has not left that church. But the reason why we don't see the power of God in our churches is because in most of our churches today, He's seated on the rock, if you will. He said to us, you got your church manual, you got your constitution, you got your bylaws, you got how you always do it. Sounds like you got a good plan there. Knock yourself out. Show me what you can do. You feed them. By the way, what was the reaction of the disciples when Jesus said you feed them? They freaked out, didn't they? They pulled their calculators out and they literally said eight months wages won't be enough to give everyone a buy. They did the math. 200 denarii, by the way, is like eight months' worth of salary. Eight months' worth of salary won't be enough to give everybody just a bite. This is impossible, and this is not in the budget. 
So what does he do? He says, well, what do you got? Go find out. Now, John's account, John's account tells us that it was a little boy that had these five loaves and these two fish. By the way, a Jewish happy meal, maybe. How many of you, show of hands, remember the flannel graph? Remember Sunday school when you used to have flannel graph? Thomas, you were in an old church for you to be so young and have been to a flannel graph Sunday school lesson. It was here? I believe it. I believe it. Was it Miss Betty? That's awesome. Miss Betty's awesome. She's been teaching children forever. You guys too? Miss Betty in the flannel graph? That's awesome. Here's the deal. You remember when we studied the flannel graph or we saw the pictures in our Sunday school lesson? It was always five loaves of Wonder Bread, wasn't it? Weren't they big loaves? They were like Wonder Bread loaves. And the fish were like grouper, though, weren't they? Folks, listen to me. A little boy was not carrying around five loaves of Wonder Bread and two grouper. Chances are they were probably little biscuit cakes and two sardines. And what does Jesus do? If you look at the gospel accounts, two of them say that Jesus commanded the people to go out into that crowd of over 5,000 men and tell them to sit down. But actually, two of the other accounts say that Jesus told the disciples to do it. So who told them to go sit down? Did Jesus tell them to go sit down or did the disciples tell them to go sit down? Yes, the answer is yes. But how Jesus did it was he told the disciples. In other words, he had to send the disciples out into a crowd of over 5,000 people. And he had them, by the way, when they were going out into the crowd, did they have any idea how they were going to feed all those people? With Nobody knew what little they had except the disciples and Jesus. And they had to go out in a crowd of over 5,000 people and say, um, would you all get in groups of 50s and 100s? Because Jesus wants to feed you before you go. Now, as they went out into the crowd, aren't you pretty sure someone had to have said, how in the world are you going to feed all these people in such a desolate place? People had to have been saying, how? What was the only answer the disciples could give? I don't know. But he said he would do it. And they had this again. He sent them out with no food, pretty much, no money, no ability to fix it. And what does he do? He re teaches the lesson. By the way, let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed about right about the time you finally get new tires on the car, the washing machine breaks? Anybody else ever that happen to them? God continually puts us in situations over and over and over to remind us of what I like to call the lesson of the loaves. Go to John chapter 6, though, and look at John's account. We see something in John's account that's pretty interesting. We see a little bit more of an intimate part of this conversation between Jesus and his disciples in John's account. Look at John chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 6. Actually, we'll go all the way through verse 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is on the Sea of Tiberias, uh, sorry, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this 
to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have, you, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples to gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Look closely what happens. Jesus turns to Philip and he says, how, how, If I were to ask you to feed these people, how would you do it? I can't. And Jesus said, he asked this to test him. He already knew what he was going to do. Listen to me very carefully, because I'm going to show you this from the scriptures. When God continually puts us in the next situation, it could be financial, it could be a loss of a loved one, it could be health, it could be who knows whatever it is. There are many different trials, many different tests. When God puts us in the next one, he has a purpose and a plan. He's mainly trying to shape us and teach us. He already has in mind how he wants to Resolve it. But what's he doing first, according to the scriptures? He's, it says right here, he was testing him. Let me ask you a question. When God tests us, is his desire to find out how we respond? Then why is he testing us? For us to find out. Hang on one second, then I'll get right to you. In other words, when God puts you in a situation... He already knows how you're going to respond. He's using it to teach you where you really are. The test isn't for him to find out how you respond. He already knows. Peter said, look, I'm willing to go to prison and death. Jesus says, actually, it's not how you're going to do it. You're going to deny you even know me three times for the rooster crows. But it's okay. I'm going to use this to shape you, and you're going to come out of this stronger. The best illustration I can give you is this. If I need to move you from here to here... I can't move you from there to here if you think you're already here, right? If you think you're here, but I know you're there. If I try to move you to here, you're not going to listen because you think you're here. So what have I got to do before I bring you to where I need you to be if you think you're already there? I got to show you where you really are. Listen to me, folks. Some of you have failed some tests in your life. Anybody here ever failed a test in your life? I hope you all raised your hands. We all have. Listen to me, God is not mad when you fail the test because the purpose of the test is to show you what he already knows. I've shared this before, but years ago when we moved here for me to become pastor of this church in 2000, God blessed us with a nice house here in, in Indian Harbor Beach with an in-ground pool and five exits off the back of the house to the pool. And our kids, which are now 26 and about to be 24 and AJ 21, were all not that. A.J. was one, so it was 20 years ago, and A.J. couldn't swim. But unfortunately, A.J. wasn't afraid of the water. He thought he could swim. And we were forever worried about the doors being locked or unlocked, and could he get to the pool? And so I finally, having been a lifeguard myself years ago, I said to my son, I want to teach you to swim, and A.J. wouldn't let me. 
It's like, you already know how to swim? Yes. You don't need me to teach you? No. So I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do then. Since you can swim, I'm going to give you a swimming test to see how you do. I then told Becky, go where you can't hear or see what's about to happen next. Seriously. I said, you got to go, plug your ears, play some music, get somewhere because I didn't want her seeing what I was about to do. And I took my son, fully clothed, who was one year old, and I threw him in the deep end of the pool, which is about seven feet deep. By the way, let me ask you a question. Did he pass the test or fail the test? Failed it wonderfully. Was I upset that he failed the test? I was ecstatic. You know why? Because my son, who thought he was here, now realized through the test that he was here. And he was now teachable. Guess who wasn't going anywhere near the pool anymore? My son. But guess what? He was now teachable. And God's so awesome. You know what one of his first jobs were? He was a lifeguard at Disney. Trained for deep water. Isn't that awesome? God takes our failures and turns them into some of our greatest things. Now, I don't know if you remember what you had your hand raised for. You had to write it down. Go ahead. You had your hand raised. Go ahead. Without question, a part of the test is admitting we can't do it. Now, write this down. Look at it later on. I'm just going to quote it to you, but I want you to go take a look at it. You go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, you're going to see that God took the nation of Israel after he miraculously set them free from slavery in Egypt. What's the first place he led them? To the wilderness. He led them to a place where there was no food and no water. Sound familiar? He sent them out without any provisions. What was he doing? Well, the Bible says he was humbling them. You go read Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 5. Remember all these years how the Lord your God led you in the wilderness. He caused you to hunger. He made you thirsty. He did it to humble you, to remind you of your dependence on him. He did it to test you to see what was in your heart, whether you keep his commandments or not. By the way, the test wasn't for God. The test was for them. And he did it to teach you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. In that passage, you will hear God say to them, I made you hungry. I made you thirsty. I fed you with manna, which you had never seen before, nor had your fathers ever seen before, to teach you that man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Hear what I want you to hear. God's solution to the latest test that he's putting you through will probably be different from how he solved it last time. There'll be some similarities, but chances are it won't be at all like he did it last time. Why? Because if Jesus spit in the ground and made mud every time he healed someone of blindness, what would we be doing today? We'd be spitting in the ground making mud because we think the power is in the method, folks. The power is not in the method. The power is in the one who determines the method. And Jesus never healed a blind person the same way twice. The walls of Jericho were successful, but he never had them walking around another city. The instructions for crossing the Red Sea were totally different from the instructions of uh, going across the Jordan River. I could go on and on. Strike the rock. Next time, speak to the rock. We keep falling prey to, well, how did God solve it last time? That doesn't mean he's going to do it this time. What's he trying to teach us? How to walk with him and how to listen. You're going to see this now develop as we go through next week and we continue on. You all do realize that Jesus passed that same test, though, right, don't you? Remember how he led the nation of Israel into the wilderness? What happened to Jesus right after his baptism? He was led of the Spirit where? Into the wilderness to be 
tempted and tested by the devil. Listen, what were the devil's temptations? Take it into your own hands. Do it in your own power. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. And he said, no, uh -uh, I'm going to wait on the father. Oh, put yourself up on this pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself down because the scripture says angels will take care of you. And all these people will believe when they see this miracle. He said, nope, don't put God to a test. You can test God if he determines the test, but you don't determine what the test of God is. And of course, Satan says, come and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. And he said, you know what? I'm going to do it the father's way and that's for me to die. And that's how all the kings of the world will be given to me, not by me worshiping you. And Jesus was tempted to take things into his own hands and come back and report all that he had done. And he didn't. He humbled himself, Glenn, like you said, and said, I'll only do what the father has me do. And he only did it by the father's power. If Jesus was put in situations to be tested, guess what's in your future? Guess what you're probably going through now? Now, as we close tonight, I'm going to give you a little commercial for next week. Go with me to Mark chapter 8. You're going to see that not only is the feeding of the 5,000 a reteaching of the previous lesson of when he sent them out two by two, after the feeding of the 5,000, you're going to see next week that Jesus sends them off into a boat by themselves, right? Actually, it's, it's Mark chapter 6. I said chapter 8. Go to Mark chapter 6. I'm sorry. He makes them go off in a boat by themselves, and Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. We'll deal with it in more detail next week. But anybody want to know why Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray when he sends his disciples off? It's tied to something we read earlier tonight. We'll deal with it in more detail next week. But has anybody got a clue as to why Jesus spends him, goes off by himself, sends him off on a boat after the feeding of the 5,000? Go ahead, Becky, why? He still hasn't dealt with John's death, remember? He had heard about it, and he went to get away, but the crowd was there. Of course, Jesus knew that was going to happen. Didn't catch him by surprise, but he still hadn't had that time with the Father. We'll deal with that next week. The importance of getting that time alone with the Father when we go through stuff like this. But look at verse 52. The end of where we're going to go next week, or a section of where we're going to be next week. After he sends them off, he's going to get on the water and walk on the water. He gets in the boat with them, and they were utterly astounded. Look at verse 52 of Mark 6. For they didn't understand about what? The loaves. Their hearts were hearted. Come back next week. Because I'm going to show you that the walking on the water story, which Mark and Matthew were going to give us a lot of insight to, is tied to the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't understand about the loaves. That's why they didn't understand the walking on the water. You're going to see they still don't get it after he walks on the water and he has to feed another group of 4,000. They still don't get it. I'm going to keep showing you how they have to keep going through that same lesson. And that makes me feel good because in my life, I've had to be reminded a few times of his power and provision. Have you not as well? But I'm going to ask you a closing question. How many basketfuls of broken pieces were left over? Twelve. One for each knucklehead to pick up. I love you. We'll deal with it more next week. See you then.